Good morning and welcome morning. to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk O'Bear. I'm John Birdsall. How are you doing, Kirk? I am doing awesome. I know that both you and I have been doing the same thing all week in addition to our regular <laughs> legal duties that we have and you know responsible for our clients and so forth. Uh, we, as the whole nation, probably the whole world, have been watching the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. There's that other trial Absolutely. in Georgia that I've been trying to follow as well, but the one, the Rittenhouse one is just uh, chock oh, full of so cool. uh, ex- excitement and interesting things going on. Well, it's close to home. It's it's um, explosive, uh, and uh, it's really kind of a definitive case of our of our current times. You know, I mean, I'm not saying this is the case of the century. I'm saying it's it's kind of definitive of our political divides. Now. Yes, I mean it grew out of a political divide, and it just you know, it just like got baked in, um, and and of course you and I know most of the actors in the uh, in the courtroom, and so it's doubly interesting to us. But uh, but the Arbery case in Ahmad Arbery case in Georgia is, uh, and you know what, we shouldn't even call it the Ahmad Arbery case. We should call it the McDaniel murder case <laughs> right because <laughs> uh, Ahmad Arbery of course is the victim but um uh but yeah it's been it's been fascinating and kind of you know difficult to to do like our normal our normal uh court appearances and other work but uh but I'm you know so I've spent many hours either at night or like capturing it during the day but keeping up to it and uh, you had the honor of being a commentator on Court TV earlier this week. I, I did, and um, I expect you to pay me the proper respect now. That <laughs> well, ABC News isn't good enough, I guess. Huh? A, that's, that's what a I mean. nationally recognized live <laughs> TV commentator should deserve. <laughs> right. I gotcha. All right. First, we do have to throw a caveat out there because, as most of our regular listeners know, our show often, in fact, never is broadcast live. When I say often, not live, I mean never live. Um, We do (laughs) take advantage of uh, holes in our schedule that match with both of us, and we do record these things at some point prior to Saturday morning. We try to wait till as late in the week as possible, but we are, in fact, recording the show on the afternoon of Thursday, November 11th. So that's the caveat out there is that by the time you hear this, an entire day's worth of events in the Rittenhouse trial will have already occurred. And if we sound like idiots because we're talking about something that became obviated by circumstances, then that's the reason why. Or it could be just that we're idiots. I'm not sure which, but. Well, I, you're not an idiot because you just used the word obviate, and which is an awesome word. Oh, is that like, an, and, uh, um, uh, is that like a, uh, <laughs> what do they call that? An SAT word? Like one of those words you got to study? In case uh, yeah, for sure. For sure. So, you know, as we're recording this, uh, the judge has been asked by the prosecution, um, and I think appropriately so to say, all right, well, we're we're done with the evidence. And so we're going to do the instructions to the jury and closings. um, And that's going to take a good chunk of a single day easily. And so he didn't want the jury to start deliberating at four o'clock on a Friday. Well, you know, as I'm sure you'd agree that, you know, that's, that's an awful thing for everybody involved. And so he wants to delay it till Monday. And so, uh, well, that'll be just be interesting to see, you know, if that actually 
if the judge goes with that. He seemed inclined to go with that, you know? You know, I agree 100% with that sentiment because, um, and I always try to emphasize this to the judge and the prosecution when I have a case that's gone on for any substantial period of time, meaning like beyond a couple of days. I really don't like the idea of the jury getting the case to start deliberations close to when you can imagine they're going to want to quit for the day or after a long week. It just has a tendency, or at least the fear is that they will not be as inclined to as thoroughly discuss the evidence as possible. Now, the wisdom on this issue, interestingly, uh, tends to go um, in favor of the prosecution if uh, there is a an opportunity for the jury to start deliberating you know, it, during the evening hours on a day when everybody knows they're going to want to go home. I mean, that's generally what I've heard. Um, and I, right. I don't, well, all these philosophies yeah. are not real. I mean, these are just things that lawyers think about because we've got nothing better to do when it comes to philosophies about uh, length of deliberations. <laughs> but most most quick deliberations, at least in my experience, have been uh, guilty verdicts. And I think that's based on the assumption and I've never served on a jury. I wish I could. I really wish that I would have that opportunity. I doubt that. I would love to. Would and love I would be to. a fair juror for any of you lawyers out there that are listening. And if I do ever end up on your jury panel, I will be fair. I promise. Just get me on that jury. Um, no, just because <laughs> I'd love to see how the dynamics of the, you know, the different personalities <clears throat> and things work. We all hope we on the outside of this process hope that juries take it very, very seriously and that they actually do analyze the evidence and they, they do the things that we hope and imagine that 12 jurors will do, which is don't take one person's opinion to be the ultimate conclusion in the case. It's important that 12 people share their own views, their own recollections, their own conclusions, that their own human brains as part of this process, because that's one of the main protections of our legal system is to have not just one or a couple of people determine these issues. So going into the afternoon hours, right before a weekend after a two week long trial is a bad formula, especially for the defense. Um, but what do you think about that? I mean, would the, I know Binger has been pushing this, um, you know, which I imagine he probably would as well. Everybody wants the jury to have enough time and not to feel any time pressure. Um, the good thing about coming back next week would be, you know, it's a it's yeah, they, they make their closing arguments and then boom, they go into deliberations and get to start fresh after a weekend of rest and so on. Well, what's your view on that? Well, I have a couple. Um, first, I absolutely think they should go on Monday. Um, if they don't, I, I mean, I'd be, I would be surprised if Judge Schrader didn't do that. You know, like in, in, in a garden variety criminal case, um, most judges would say, no, we're just going to plow forward and we're going to uh, get this done. And, and but in a case like this, I, I I would imagine that even he will say nope. And the reason that they want to plow forward most of the time in most cases is because they have a hundred, couple hundred, maybe more other cases all packed <laughs> up and waiting, That's and true. they have to deal with them. And um and 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 so they want to get this done on a Friday so that on Monday they can come in clean and get their own work done. But. <clears throat> Uh, and, and of course that 
seems to run counter to only worrying about <laughs> the rights of the defendant. But uh, in any event, that's just the reality. And the other thing I would say is <clears throat> I feel very strongly about this is that despite the cost, I absolutely think that for deliberations, they should be sequestered. Right. Um, right. And, and I, and I realize that's a huge inconvenience for them and a cost for the County, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, in this case, and I, I just learned this today, and it's not unexpected, but that Judge Schrader and some of the lawyers have received just just thousands of emails with threats and just like disparaging <laughs> comments. And, oh, and um, uh, you know, and, and it was on court TV, so they didn't share what all the details were because um, I think that they were, uh, let's just say, you know, filled with expletives and other disparaging things. But um, – but essentially, you know, one of the big things, this is what the correspondence shared, was the um, ruling by Judge Schrader about not being able to refer to uh, victims. Right. And, and you know, th- this goes to show the um, lack of understanding of, uh, which we try to correct on this show, but the lack of understanding of how the system works and is supposed to work. And... And he was 100% right in that ruling. I mean, and I don't think there's anybody that does criminal law, prosecution or defense, that would dispute that. Right, right. That is a that is a, that is a hundred percent correct. Well, ruling. not only now, that, but anybody who paid attention to the actual words that were spoken during that ruling would understand the logic behind it and the fact that he, Judge Schrader himself referenced the fact that there are specific reasons why that's not permitted. And in fact, it it was rather. Um, I, I think a a bit of a punch under the belt for Binger to even bring it up in a case like this. You know, he knew that he was had the world watching, I suppose. And yeah, you know, mo- most most prosecutors, most defense lawyers, you know, we know going into a situation like this, the judge's position on something. And yeah, I understand you got to make a record, but that isn't something that's going to get appealed. You know, by the state if the judge says, "Hey, I, I'm not going to let you," or "I'll go ahead and let you." refer to them this way, or I won't let you refer to them that way. You know, Binger knew whether or not the judge was going to allow that, but he did it just so people would, you know, be drawn attention to this. And there's no remedy for him. Yeah. He can't file an interlocutory appeal on that issue, you know, at the last minute. That's ludicrous. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we now we got to go to a break. But and we'll when we right come back, back, let's uh, let's let's weigh in on how uh, how we see this shaking out. You got it. We'll be right back. We are back with more legal defense and, well, for the last couple of weeks, the Rittenhouse podcast. <laughs> <laughs> true, true, true. Uh, do you know so what? I-, um, I can't think of a case in Wisconsin history that's been this riveting probably since Donner. Right. And that was you know? that was riveting for different reasons. And I, I don't. That's a very different reason. Yeah, yes. different, a very different reason. It was just morbid, I think. But this has yeah, been, it wasn't political. Yeah, and I've been very impressed with Court TV, by the way. That, um, and I like their I new format. I like their new format. I like the way that they've. It's really uh, diving deep into trials all over the country, and it's fascinating. Um, I, I like the the. Yeah, and I think I think I think both the correspondents and the guests. Mm-hmm. Um, show demonstrate at least to me a, a very very in-depth serious understanding of 
how the law works and um, how trials are supposed to work. Right. Um, high, you know, high quality and, speakers. There's one commentator in particular that I think is just brilliant. Um, but you know who that is. So that's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm a guest. I was technically a guest. You see that as so, a softball uh, compliment out there, and all you had to do was like catch it with, you know, <laughs> with the glove, you know, right, thrown right at you, and you're like, uh, who? Okay. So, <laughs> uh, all right. So, so um, like, uh, like well, let's, let's ask some ultimate questions. Mm-hmm. Like, um, all the evidence is in. Mm-hmm. Um, how does this shake out? I mean, and why? <laughs> In your well, opinion. again, this has been a fascinating demonstration of, like I said on a different show, this is like a textbook exam question for, you know, criminal criminal law 101 in law school, where you have to go through all the different aspects of self-defense, including the multiple layers of whether the privilege attaches and when you lose it and when you can regain it and so on. But uh, what I didn't expect, and I'll just be honest with you, John, I didn't expect mm-hmm. the um, as the trial progressed, the overwhelming feeling that the defense was winning at every clip. And I say that meaning all the stuff that happened before Rittenhouse took the stand. I w- my was of the mindset that it was about a 90 percent uh, tipping in the scale in favor of the defense at that point. When he took the stand, and and this is another fascinating aspect of the case, if you ask people, and of course, there's been a lot of discussion in in our private groups of defense lawyers about their impressions of things, roughly half the people think he did great on the stand and he was very sympathetic, and the other half think that he, he tanked the case. And I think that's fascinating because this is what we do for, you know, our careers, for what we do 24 hours a day, seven days a week is we think about this stuff. And one of the big questions that that we profess to have a logical and well-reasoned answer to is whether or not the defendant takes the stand in a case like this. And much as fate would often uh, dictate to us, when you and I predicted that there's no way on this uh, earth or any other that Rittenhouse would take the stand, guess what happened? He did. Um, So, I, I think that's fascinating in the sense that I've had cases where I was going to call my client to the stand and I changed my mind because the trial was going so well. Um, and I would, I would have thought in this situation, given how well it was going, that, um, you know, that would be a decision made. Now that being said, um, and maybe this is just my own bias on this thing. And maybe it's just because um, I really thought that, Tom Binger did a terrible job, but I'm predicting a, an acquittal on all the felony counts here. I don't know how you feel about how things will shake out. So I, I think that is still a high likelihood, um, an acquittal. And I, you, you know, that's the, the gun possession that's, you know, that's, that's going to happen, but um, almost as that should almost be a directed verdict really. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, <laughs> um, but uh, but I agree pretty much. And this is probably where we're partners because we think alike so much. But uh, and I said this on court TV actually is that look, the default in a self defense case usually is that the client should take the stand, and the reason is is because the self defense um, 
statute and the law on self-defense requires the jury to take into account what happening, what's happening from the perspective of the defendant at the time, right? Well, who can supply that? Well, um, usually it's something that happened with no witnesses and uh, something that happened with no video. And, you know, I've, I mean, I've had where it does have video because it happened in a bar and there's surveillance cameras, etc. But in this case, I said then, and, I, and I'll stand by it, is in this case right now, just objectively, forgetting about the politics and stuff, there was so many videos and so many witnesses um, that um, it was really unnecessary um, to just, just, just from a high-level view to put your client on the stand to put Rittenhouse on the stand. Now, add to that what you, I think, accurately surmised, which is every single step of the way, every prosecution witness for the first, you know, I don't know, four or five days, um, was was basically flipped to be a defense witness. Mm-hmm. And and it's it was I was absolutely flabbergasted um, as I watched this happen. Uh, and kudos to the defense team because they're they're fine lawyers. We know them, um, but they were immensely prepared, and uh, and they just really, really, really kind of like outplayed uh, the prosecution. Now, in fairness to the DA, um, you know maybe there was nothing he could do about that in terms of what these witnesses were going to say or whether they were going to flip or whatever. But that said. I agree that it was like damn near. Oh, we can't say that. Gosh darn near. Gosh darn. Yeah, I mean, I think. Gosh darn near um, a for sure acquittal. When you introduce your client on the stand, you, in effect, even though the burden of proof has not legally changed, you, in effect, change the burden of proof. Right. And you have you have taken on, you, you have changed it from beyond a reasonable doubt to, hey, we're going to flip a coin. And, right. um, you know. And I, that's and, because psychologically, and look, this is what it'll come down to for everybody. Did you think his tears and grimacing on the stand were genuine or were they, you know, rehearsed? And that's what it all comes down to. And it really shouldn't. Yeah. You know, no, and it was he could have said those things absolutely genuinely, and he could have been encouraged by his lawyers to put on a show or whatever. But you know, that's what it is going to come down to. How if you think that he mustered some kind of fake emotion, how are you going to feel comfortable voting for an acquittal? I mean, you know, emotionally and psychologically, legally, let's look at it this way even if you thought that was sincere. And even if you believe that that sincerity shows him to be of some elevated character um, as a human being, that doesn't change what happened. Right. That doesn't change the insertion of yourself into a, a, um, a charged atmosphere with a loaded gun, which you, you know, you failed to adequately explain why you even have it. Right. They barely know how to use change any of that. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, and so, Honestly, I thought that was, I mean, I'm sure it's really easy to Monday morning quarterback and say, you know, you shouldn't have done that um, uh, and put him on the stand. But I think that was a tactical error on their part. Yeah, I really do. Yeah. And it's, it's, 
it, I think that it's <laughs> really interesting how, and my favorite part of what's been going on so far, and I, I hate to relish in other people's misery. I, I honestly do. But my favorite part of what's been going on in these proceedings is when Judge Schrader blows up and, mm-hmm. and you know, admonishes Tom Miger all over the place on you know national, international television, only because I've had cases against him, and, and it just makes me happy to see him squirm. Well, you know what, though? He kind of brought that on himself. He, he knows how Judge Schrader operates. Plus, he knows the law. And he works in the and same courthouse as the guy. Those, can't be like, I'm that, from out of town. That that kind of walking the line like he did was um, was just foolish, really. You know, there's a couple of different schools of thought on that. And maybe, we're going to be we should, just so people know what we're talking about. Maybe we yeah. should just like briefly state like uh, there's there was two things. One is he was asking um, a witness uh, cross examination on one of the first defense witnesses, I think, um, about. Um, whether or not, uh, or no, he asked, no, excuse me. He was asking Kyle on the stand. He was cross-examining Kyle, asking him, this is the first time you told your story. Exactly. And Maybe. that's a comment on, we gotta take that's a, a comment on a defendant's silence, which is, is a strict prohibition that every trial lawyer that does criminal law knows. Right. We'll and pick up with that then, when we come back from the break. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, dude, and but I have to. We got to take a break. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. We'll be right back. Okay, welcome back. Sorry, John, but you know we we the advertisers okay, were knocking hey, on the door. Know, rule, rules are rules. <laughs> times are time. Time limits are time limits. So, okay, so the first one was cross examining um, Kyle Rittenhouse about his you know uh, uh, silence during the pendency of the case. The second was they they had earlier tried to get in. Um, some what's called other acts evidence, which is things that are similarly uh, that are similar to what his, he, he's being charged with. And it was his comment about watching some people coming out of a CVS and he that they thought were shoplifters. And he says, I wish I had my AR-15 and so I could shoot these people. Mm-hmm. And, and so Binger wanted to get into that. The judge had previously ruled he couldn't, but he began to ask about it anyways. Right. Because in his mind, he, the, the guy had opened the door by his, some of his testimony. But, of course, when the judge – you're supposed to ask the judge before you right. can get into that, no matter what. And mm-hmm. so and so that's why the judge blew off. And, um, and I, I want to comment so. on both of those things. And I'll tell you what – I'll tell you my theory. It's one of two things. Number one uh, – Binger is that type of prosecutor who will do anything and everything, uh, you know, and convince himself mentally that he is just barely um, tiptoeing up to the line and he'll have some argument in his head why it's appropriate. Now, on that first issue, that's like a universal no, no. Um, A prosecutor is never supposed to elicit testimony or comment on the fact that someone had uh, May, you know, post-arrest silence is the issue because it's an absolute right that can't be ever taken away from you unless waived. So this is one of those cases where the implication by the state of evidence that Binger is aware of is that he invoked his right to remain silent at some point, which would cast suspicion on whether what he's telling now is the truth. Now, that's a little different from questions that are allowed, and it's more like, you know, post 
offense conduct, uh, and usually like immediately after the offense, that may be evidence of one's state of mind, uh, consciousness of guilt or consciousness of innocence. But that more often has to do with, you know, somebody commits a crime, an alleged crime with a gun, and then they get rid of the gun. You know, they throw it in the lake or something like that. Well, that may be something that no one, it's it's conduct that happens afterwards. There is a very, very limited uh, group of circumstances where post-arrest silence, if properly presented, can be admitted, but it's only in a very narrow set of circumstances. And it's it's too complicated to get into right now, but this was not one of them. This was not one where someone would have been able to do that. And it usually has to do with, um, you know, more observational things than anything else. So anyway, I'll leave it at that. The other aspect, which was, again, this was something that clearly had been 100% addressed by Judge Schrader pre-trial on another acts motion that the state had filed and the judge had denied. And that, as you said, had to do with this video where, Rittenhouse is narrating as he sees some people coming out of, you know, the commentary was people that are allegedly robbing a store or something. He said, I wish I had my AR-15. I'd shoot a few rounds at them. Well, that was deemed off limits. Now, um, sure, I think that uh, Binger thought that he was going to be um, somehow making it relevant based on other questions that he had already asked. But you're right, John. If you think you've opened the door you immediately ask for a hearing outside the presence of the jury. You tell the judge, your honor, this is different than what you had said before. I believe the door has been opened and that I should be allowed to ask these other questions, which is, again, that's like uh, advocacy so, 101. Right. So what what Binger argued, um, <laughs> I think pretty, pretty lamely, but um, I mean, or thinly, I guess, uh, was that he had asked questions about to Rittenhouse about, well, you agree that you can't use your weapon to protect property. Yes. You can only use it to protect life. Yes. And that was the interchange. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that was, that was the exchange that he claims opened the door. Well, you know what, what you just said, if you think that's the case, then you say, judge, I'd like to have a little, uh, uh, readdressing the motion because, um, I, I believe the judge did say uh, your motion's denied, but we'll see what happens in, you know, uh, you know, something like that. Right. Which he does all the time, all by the, the way. Time. Yeah. And he did say that. Um, he said, I'll reserve, you know, it's denied now, but if something changes, let, you know, I'll readdress it. Now, wait, I need yeah. to add one more thing to this, John. And this did come up during yeah. that hearing, but a lot of the coverage didn't really focus on this. There was a discussion about if the door was opened, who opened it? Right. Because there is a rule that the saying goes, you can't open your own door and then walk through it. It's only if the other side opens the door. So that's what I thought was, frankly, the term I think of in terms of how he handled this was ham handed. You know, you know, he basically Mm. went down this path of ask. And I saw him asking these questions. I'm like, what are you focusing on, dude? And then I got it as soon as he came out, like, well, in the past, he tried to set him up to knock him down, you know? That's what he yeah, tried to do. Yeah. And, and if that here's that was his theory as to why all of a sudden he thought it was relevant was based on questions he himself asked. Well, that that simply isn't the rule. So that's not an excuse either. I mean, Schrader can be, as we've seen, uh, very um, what's the right word? Uh, direct. 
That's a very polite way of putting it. It's a very polite way of putting it. Unambiguously direct. Yes. Yeah. What? Uh, and he can come across as, and the one thing that Binger did say that I thought was kind of cool was, Judge, if you're going to yell at me, go ahead, which is the right thing to say when you're trying to stand up for yourself on the record. But, well, you know, I mean, I mean, Binger did under that withering um, <laughs> directness, uh, he did keep his cool. I'll give him, I'll give him that. <laughs> he just know? didn't have a very good argument. like melt down. <clears throat> now, Another thing I want to comment on, John, is that there was speculation out there that he might have been throwing, deliberately right. throwing the case. And that is something that Which, happens. Well, that resulted in a motion for a mistrial. Well, not because of that, but there was a motion for a mistrial. And as of the, this recording, it has not been ruled on. Um, I seriously doubt that that will be granted. Um, but I, I couldn't imagine. I would be shocked. Although he did say that um, the judge said, after Binger said, I'm, I'm making all these comments in good faith, the judge says, quote, I do not believe you. <laughs> Which is so, one of the elements for why it would be dismissed with prejudice. So that's, um, that's the ultimate directness, isn't it? I think you're lying to me. Right. <laughs> I think you are a liar. Very sir. direct. In you open know, court on international television. Yeah. You know, and another thing that I wonder, and just in terms of the ethics around all of this, is that when that happened, it was about the third or fourth time within a short period of time that the jury had to leave the courtroom, um, you know, because there had been these repeated issues that came up and the judge kept on having to shuttle the jury out. So I wonder if Binger was taking advantage of the opportunity that most that the defense and the judge might be loath to do, take that action again, since it's. You know, although it probably sends the message that the prosecutor is doing something very wrong when they have to do that, when they go in and out. I know they're not supposed to speculate on that, but. Yeah, well, you know, honestly, I haven't been in the jury room or the library, which is apparently this antechamber from the jury box. But um, the way he raised his voice, I I have a hard time feeling they didn't hear him. (laughs) I know where that library is, and it's you certainly could. In fact, that particular courthouse has very echoey chambers and hallways. I mean, you can hear proceedings going on behind the doors when you're out in the hallway, very clearly. Um, it's an old, you know, an older building with big marble walls. Yeah. And everything. So yeah. Um, interesting that, you know, in this case, Binger's pushing the line so hard because if he does get a conviction, wouldn't he want it to be, well, this would be true in every case, right, John? You'd want it to be a clean conviction obtained fairly without any controversial appellate issue peppering the right. process. And, right. and it, all he was doing was tempting the judge to do something that could result in an appeal uh, that would reverse the entire process. And that is shameful. If a prosecutor goes down that route, because they're, those are taxpayer dollars that we hope that if there's going to be a prosecution of somebody that they can get it right the first time. I mean, I, I can't even fathom how much money it costs society and our, and our community to prosecute one of these cases twice. Well, you know, once is a lot, but I, I don't know if there's a dollar amount that you can put on that, but just think about no, it. It's, it's incredible. Uh, yeah. It's phenomenal. But um, well, I know we're coming up on a break here, but uh, it's, it's, it's really been for, you know, even casual viewers of trials, this, this is, this had just about everything. 
Yeah, that it's not just about everything. Full of all the, the the dynamics and emotion, yeah. and you know, on the edge of your seat at some points. But all right, we will be right back after these messages. We are back with more of the Kyle Rittenhouse podcast. No, Legal Defense <laughs> with Kirk and John. Yes. Um. So, uh. Well, I think that um. One of the benefits of having this. Uh, get such saturation coverage is that at least some part of the population is getting an education about right. how, how how courts work, and I agree with you. I think Court TV did a did a good does a good job of doing that educational, you know, rather than just prompt promoting. I mean, to a certain extent, they do promote drama and they provoke you know promote the conflict that a trial is. They but, didn't have to do um, much in this case. <laughs> Well, no, that's true. Um, but uh, but I think other news outlets did, too. I know you were on ABC, and, you know, it's like, I, I think it's gotten some um, some good coverage with some of the even local or national uh, print media. But, uh, but I think that there's so little understanding about how trials work, and it's partly because of TV, TV and movies, you know, that, that – that, that really just like focus in on, you know, like a fancy speech or something <laughs> and, 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 you know, and um, how the actors uh, make facial expressions and they're telling, cause they're telling a story. Right. And the trial is just sort of like a vehicle to do it. It has nothing to do with how trials actually work. Um, but unless it's my cousin, Vinny, that is an actual good <laughs> trial. Movie. That is how they actually work. Yeah. Um, that actually is. Um, but, and so I'm, I'm happy that I think, cause we try to do that on this show is, is we try and, uh, I don't know, pull back the curtain a little bit about, um, all right, well, I know it seems strange, but here's why, you know, we would do this. Are we being, you know, the, 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 the judge and the, 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 the attorneys on the case would argue this. And that's why the judge ruled this. And, you know, this is what the cases hold and that sort of thing. You know, so yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what you yeah, think. No, that, and but, and yeah. I think that we try to inject a dose of reality just because I like to think we know what we're talking about. I'm not entirely sure. But uh, <laughs> it's been that I have found very interesting in this case is that it's been sort of a lightning rod for people to voice their opinions about things, again, within the communities that you and I have frequent contact with other lawyers, but also just listening to the different perspectives from people in the media, as well as just people that you run into. I, I'm, I'm kind of pleased in the sense that, I mean, that nothing, there's nothing good about this case. It should never have happened. I have my own views about whether dude should have been there with his, you know, AR 15 and whether or not that made matters better or worse, which I won't comment on right now, but I think I, I think you know how I feel about that, but uh, looking at the law here and the facts as they were presented, um, you know, I've heard a lot of commentary that, that really is not talking about politics, not talking about people's views on things, and, and really has been focusing on how this case has been presented, how it's been defended, what the, the actual factual disputes that have come down the line. However, it is also true that all, despite Judge Schrader's best efforts to keep this from being a political showtown, showdown of contrasting ideas, uh, Binger himself has done more to try and inject that into this case than anybody. And it, it's odd, I think, because when you bring that into play, I think that would be the thing that would um, 
probably enhance the defense point of view more than anything. So you know, yeah, I would, I, I totally agree. Yeah. So this whole thing about his, you know, free as F shirt, you know, that whole story, yeah. right? I mean, that was something that he's been fighting to bring into evidence from day one, even though it's something that happened four months after the incident. It was when Rittenhouse was released, finally released. Well, he, he, he argues it shows his lack of remorse, even though he's trying to, you know, show remorse. And, and that's really more of, well, <laughs> I guess it goes to his intent and, you know, and, and all that. But uh, it was it, it was some pretty weak tea as far as his legal argument goes. Oh, I agree. And I, I can think of a way that I would argue it where it would make a bit more sense. But and that's this uh, after his. What's the best way to describe it? Intensely um, profound display of angst and emotion. Uh, that might be the reason why it comes in because th- this is not four months after the incident. This is a year, a year plus months after the incident. And he's broken up like, and crying like he's never cried. You know, you've, that's about as um, dramatic as you've ever seen somebody, but here we are four months after the incident, he's drinking, partying at a bar. He's got a, you know, a, an in your face kind of t-shirt that I'm, that somebody gave to him and he's, behaving not as the, not like you would. I mean, don't you sit, that could be relevant, John, like the, in, into contrast, yeah. his behavior on the stand. That's what I thought. Yeah. No, I, no, I, I think that's a, that's a better frame than yeah. was presented. Right. But here's a, here's a very interesting issue that I, by the time this airs, I don't know if this will have been flushed <laughs> out more, but um, Gage gross, gross quits. I, Gross Kreutz. Kreutz. Um, I try to get names right. I often fail. He apparently, and I did not see this. I'm getting this like uh, through one of the court TV correspondents, appeared this morning on Good Morning America. <laughs> um, and he basically recanted a bunch of his testimony, including whether or not he denies now that he pointed his gun. Well, what, what, <laughs> and, and, and now, granted, he's not under oath there, yeah. but uh, I, I, and I don't know if this has been um, entertained by either of the parties with the judge in Bring this him case, on back. or if they want to, or if, or if they would want to recall him and just like you know, I mean, I, I, I just don't know if. If it's going to have, well, the evidence is closed. So I guess it has no bearing. Yeah, that's true. The evidence is closed. But if, (laughs) if it were still open chance for any witness to testify, I wonder, I mean, that could be a violation of a sequestration order. If he's out there talking to the entire world about what his testimony was, you know? Well, does Uh, it, does that apply to you after you're done though? Well, yeah. You can't go talk to other witnesses that are about to testify about your case. So if you talk to every single, if you put yourself out there and broadcast (laughs) every witness in the world, (laughs) every witness in the world who has a television, you know, and has the the ability to change the channel to the right channel. And he'll he'll just argue, nobody watches good morning America. Come on. That might be true, but you know, that's (laughs) Um, so, but I was just flabbergasted at that. Um, And uh, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, 
if you I don't know if you saw the use of force expert that the defense called a little bit. And this is this is the summary of his testimony. He was limited. He you know, he could only talk about certain things. And so they called him to do the timing on the video. Mm-hmm. And because um, and so they wanted to emphasize that it was just seconds, you know, from the time Rosenbaum was chasing him and then from one shot to another, you know, how long between the shots and, um, you know, and they were going. It was a very technical thing. Um, and, and honestly, I absolutely would not have called this guy. I thought that, um, you know, when, when they, when I hear they want to try and argue that this happened in a very compressed time frame, and, um, you know, and so it was a very confusing time and he's just a kid, that sort of thing. I honestly think that works against them. Um, you know, come on, you show up with a fully loaded, um, AR-15 into a contentious situation, and um, and when the first sign of trouble really rears its head with Rosenbaum chasing you, you just start unloading. I mean, four shots into him, run down the street, another bit of trouble, um, and you start unloading on people with with the police right there in their Bearcats and their automatic weapons who could have protected. You know, I mean, it's just, and so I think. I, I don't know. I don't know what you think. I think that kind of was a another error. Yeah, I don't know if it was an error as much as it was probably um, surplusage that could have been cut. But I'm sure that the intention was that this witness would be hopefully allowed to testify to much more than than what the witness was. Limited well, that's to. that's true. They originally wanted them to get into like you know how police view reasonableness and you yeah, know and, and their. Calculations. You know what? Good for them for trying to do that, because if it was a, an officer involved shooting, they would be allowed to do all that stuff. You know, they always are. And well, that's because they're officers and he's not. But right. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, little distinction there. Little. Distinction. Um, yeah, I know. That's true. I mean, he, he, he you normally the testimony would be about training and, and how one. Being in a constant state of vigilance because you're bad, surrounded by bad guys every day, you know, and because of your job wearing a, a badge and a gun and that kind of thing. But anyway, so we got to wrap it up, dude. All right. Well, watch Court TV Monday morning because I will be on. All right. We will. We will. Uh, we hope you enjoy the show. Please tune in next week as you can every Saturday at 8 o'clock right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. It's Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.